Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bible on this New Year's Sunday, will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? We are, of course, here in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mountain. We're going to pick up our reading in Matthew 6, verse 19. This, by the way, is uh, printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your spirit to move powerfully among us now, Lord, as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. I remember years ago, a friend of mine took me to, this was many years ago, he took me to a, a Rotary Club meeting. You guys know what the Rotary Club is? It's, it's a, kind of a, a, a group where a bunch of business people and professionals can gather together and kind of work on community service, kind of a look out for their community, not just for their own professional business interests. And I went to this, uh, you know, meeting, and, and I was kind of watching, and, and I'd never been to one of these before, and I was looking around, and, and it was a very interesting time because... Um, you know, the, the social part of it was, it was a luncheon, and people were eating and talking to each other, and it was pretty, well, pretty obvious they got along well with, with each other, more or less, but then we got to the part of the, the luncheon where they had kind of a ceremony, and it was a little bit like a church ceremony, because they, you know, they had readings out of this book, and, you know, kind of inspirational readings, and we even sang some songs, and we eventually did hear from a student group from the local high school, and that was kind of interesting, but what I noticed once the solemnities started was that for these, for these professionals, these business people in the area, that ceremony was so awkward. I mean, you know, we're singing these songs. It's kind of like a church service, and we're, you know, we have these kind of inspirational readings, but it was, they were just moving through it in a very perfunctory way, and there was even a kind of impatience. Like, you could almost sort of hear the cat calls coming, like, please, sit down. We, you know, let's get, get lunch over with and get back to work. 
And I realized something as I was kind of watching this Rotary Club, this particular you know, group that day, I was kind of watching this thing happen. I realized something, that for these professional business people that day, this was a fairly low-cost, low-yield kind of investment for them. This was supposed to be a not-too-serious interlude in real life. You know, they were here, and you didn't have to pay a lot of money to be a part of this, and you weren't expected to do too much. It was kind of low-cost, and it was fairly low-yield, but, I mean, it was a way of you kind of showing your community we care about more than just making money, but it was very much supposed to be a kind of not-too-serious you know, do-good interlude in real life. And by the time we got to singing songs and having readings and making this kind of solemn like this was really important, people were just getting like antsy. Because it was real life that you needed to get back to. Back in the office, that's where the real stuff happens. Because there, what you know is in the business world, aggressive investment, sometimes very high cost, but it has high yield. The stuff that really is important, you can get out of business. You're not going to get it out of a Rotary Club luncheon. And I kind of watched this, and I, I felt weird about this, thinking about the church. Because I think there's a constant danger of Rotary Club Christianity. That we do our Jesus things, whether it's, you know, in church or, you know, in other ways, we kind of do our Jesus things. We, you know, we engage in the stuff of Christian faith and life. But we really kind of want this to be a fairly low-cost, do-good interlude in what is real life where the investment really pays. You know, we need to do this stuff. We need to go to church. You know, this is not a popular notion now, but, you know, for people that kind of still see life this way, you know, we should go to church and kind of do things, you know, that are responsible. And, you know, even serious Christians, you know, we go and kind of do our Jesus things, and that, that's important. But there's this feeling, I think, often that we kind of do that, but then, you know, Sundays only last so long, and then you're back into the real world, and that's where the stakes are high. That's the aggressive investment, high-yield stuff of life. Well, here's the thing. In 2020, God gave real life, quote-unquote, a frightful shake, didn't he? And 2020 showed us something that maybe our generation needs, and that is that real life, as we like to think of it, the real world, it's not so secure and it's not so predictable as we would have thought 12 months ago. In fact, I think some of us have probably had the feeling as we've watched things being shaken in the real world this year that maybe some of us have kind of had our investing exactly backwards. Maybe we were too all in on some stuff that seemed like it was really important, and maybe it's just not so important anymore. And some of the things that God is calling us to do that we might have been able to say, well, I kind of do that in my spare time, suddenly are much more front and center for us than they would have been, because God has shaken all kinds of stuff. But there's more than that for serious Christians. The cost of Christianity is going up. It's not low cost anymore. Real Christian belief, real Christian practice requires skin in the game now in a way it didn't even 12 months ago. I think that will continue to increase. There will still be Rotary Club churches. Some of them will be very, very hip. Some of them will smell like mothballs. But it doesn't really matter what style of Rotary Club church you have, whether it's an antique show or, you know, the hippest thing on the block. The reality is, if you're the real thing now, in the 21st century, in North America at least, if you're serious about following Jesus, believing what the Bible says, and practicing what the Bible says, you are going to be at odds with the dominant powers and values of our age. If you're not up for that, you should find something else. But it's interesting, when the stakes change, 
when the stakes change, and they have changed, and they will continue to change, it forces a wonderful question for us. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? When all of a sudden you just can't maybe invest in things that seemed so important at one time, and all of a sudden God is calling you to be all in on something that could actually be very high cost, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you will notice something very interesting about shaking times like we're in now. You will find that not only do these shaking times, if you really believe it's worth it to follow Jesus, not only will these shaking times not produce any anxiety in you, shaking times will actually cause anxiety to fall away. And these will become times in which God's people will experience maybe unprecedented energy and focus. Jesus taught his disciples about this in his own time, when this thing called the Jesus way was really just emerging and it was fiercely contested all over the place. And I want to just talk about this text for a few minutes today. And I want to begin by talking about something that may not be obvious in the text, but you'll see it in a sec. I want to talk about the compass and the map. The compass and the map in verses 19 through 24. And here's how I'd like to imagine what Jesus says here in verse 19 about the treasures on earth and the treasures in heaven. Imagine the world is spread out before you. Imagine you can get up on a high perch and kind of see, see the world. And you're living in this world. And as you kind of look out over the world that you live in, there are all kinds of treasures in this world, treasures all over the place. And in your heart, you have a compass. And the needle of that compass is calibrated to detect treasures, to seek treasures, and to point you toward treasures. And so you are living in the world, and your needle is always moving towards treasures, because there's lots of treasures in this world. But as you, as you fo- kind of follow the needle of your heart and the compass of your heart to treasure, from treasure to treasure, and you go from one to one, there's something you discover over the time about the treasures in this world, and that is every single time you manage to secure one of these treasures, and this could be anything from a relationship to, you know, literal money to, you know, opportunities, educational success, professional success, whatever it is, every time you secure one of these treasures, it always ends up, always ends up being either eaten away or rusting out, or being taken by somebody else. Every single one of these treasures, and it's very frustrating, every one of them, eventually, it sometimes takes time, it might take your death, but eventually every one of them ends up being ruined, or worn out, or stolen. Now I want you to imagine that one day you find a map, and it's a map of the world, and most of what you see is perfectly recognizable, but in the margins it tells you just a very, one big piece of information. In the margins, it tells you how to locate the North Star. It tells you where to find the North Star. And scribble next to this instruction about how to find the North Star, you find three other little details that are mentioned. You are told on this treasure map that if you follow the North Star, that will lead you to the greatest treasure without even a close rival, the greatest treasure that has ever been known to anyone living. A treasure compared of such value that compared to it, all other treasures are quite literally worthless. And a treasure, most importantly, that is untouchable by moths and rust and thieves. It is an imperishable treasure. That's the first thing that the scribbles tell you. The second thing the scribbles tell you is something about your compass. With each step toward that, great, that greatest of all treasures, as you follow the North Star, with each step in that journey, the compass needle of your heart is more and more going to seek that greatest treasure. 
the needle of your heart is going to kind of stop wavering from treasure to treasure, and it's going to become true and steady, and will seek them. Every step you take will take you one more step into like steadiness in your compass needle, pointing toward that greatest of all treasures. That's the second thing. And the third is equally wonderful. You're going to discover something else, the map tells you. As you journey toward that greatest of all treasures, every other treasure that you encounter and use to make your way toward that greatest treasure... Every treasure you use that you find along the way as you're journeying towards that greatest treasure will actually increase that greatest treasure that you will enjoy. So that along this path to lose that greatest treasure means you'll lose all the rest to moths and rust and corrupt, corrupt and, and, and thieves. If you lose that greatest treasure, you'll lose all the others. But if you gain that greatest treasure, you get all the others as well. Every other treasure in the world. Now, with that imaginative exercise in view, let me just offer some brief observations about what Jesus means then when he says, lay up treasure in heaven. The first thing I'd like to say about this is that heaven is often, I think, badly misunderstood. I don't actually know how to dislodge this from our popular religious imagination, but can I just tell you that heaven is not another world we go to after this one? I I think some of you actually believe that. In fact, I recently told a group of Christian high schoolers that heaven is not where you're going to spend eternity, and they were completely gobsmacked by this, which I don't know what you all are teaching your kids. Heaven is not another world that we go to after this world. Now, setting aside the question of what happens to your soul between the time that you die and Jesus raises you from the dead, that's an interesting and important question. And we could say, in a sense, that you are in heaven with Jesus then. I think that's biblical. But the idea that after this world is done, there's this heaven thing we're going to go float around in for eternity, that's just not what the Bible says. And quite, actually, if you read the Bible carefully and look what the Bible says about heaven, you will discover that in the Bible, heaven is not so much a place to which as it's a place from which. Heaven in the Bible is not so much a place to which, but it's a place from which, because heaven is what the Bible uses to symbolize the perfection of God's life and God's rule. Our Father, where? In heaven. So heaven is like God's life. Now, we know the heaven of heavens, as King Solomon said, cannot contain God. God doesn't have a spot that he lives in, but it's, heaven is used to represent God's life beyond our world, beyond our limits here. And it's a place, it, it, it symbolizes God's rule. Thy will be done, Father, on earth as it is perfectly in heaven. So heaven perfectly, it symbolizes the perfection of God's life and rule. And the whole story of the Bible, I mean, I might be, I might be, I might be stretching a little bit here, but I don't think too much. The whole story of the Bible is the story of how we can have heaven on earth. How God's life and rule can be here. How God's kingdom and righteousness can be among us making all things as they should be. God's presence here. God's power here. God's purposes worked out here. And of course, the early part of Matthew's gospel is about the fact that heaven is afoot, people. Heaven is here. Because the Son of the Father in heaven came, the, the, the Son of God, who is going to reconcile heaven and earth, who's going to take away the sin that makes war between heaven and earth. He's going to bring God's kingdom heavenly kingdom. He says, repent. Jesus says, repent. The kingdom from heaven is, is, is among you. It's upon you, and the kingdom is going to be given to the poor 
in spirit. At the beginning of this sermon, Jesus said, blessed are the poverty-stricken in spirit because theirs is the kingdom from heaven. People who know how much they need God, how much they need His saving grace through Jesus, theirs is the kingdom. But that's heaven. God's life, God's rule, may that heaven come to earth. Now, what then does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven? If, we, if what I've said is true, then laying up treasures in heaven does not mean not caring about things on earth at all. Caring about, laying up treasure in heaven does not mean you don't care about things on earth. This is what it means. It means you care about what God cares about on earth. You guys with me? If heaven is God's life and rule, then laying up treasure in heaven means you're really caring about what God cares about on earth. You are investing on earth in what God values. You're investing in what God is doing on earth, especially through Jesus. That's the point here. And earlier in the sermon, Jesus kind of spelled out what that looks like. It means rejoicing and being faithful when you're persecuted for following Jesus. He says, blessed are the persecuted because yours is the kingdom from heaven. And you rejoice and be glad because they, they persecuted the prophets too. You just be faithful under persecution because you value what God values and you'll, you will, you're laying up treasure in the kingdom from heaven. It looks like heart obedience. He says, look, in, in this heavenly kingdom, this kingdom from heaven, y'all can't be settling for the righteousness like the scribes and Pharisees have. I want you to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because your Father in heaven cares about what's going on in your heart. So it's not enough not to murder, don't hate, not enough not to commit adultery, don't lust because that's laying up treasure that the Father treasures. It looks like loving your enemies and becoming children of your Father who is in heaven. It looks like doing your giving and your praying and your fasting in secret. Not parading, oh, look at me, Big Bad Ben, you know, my religious self out there, you know, giving and, giving and, and praying on the street corners and fasting where people can see me. Because Jesus says, no, no, you put all that away. They have their reward. If you're laying up tre- treasure in heaven, you are looking for the smile of your Father who sees in secret. That's laying up treasure in heaven. A third observation. So that's heaven and laying up treasure. A third thing you'll notice in verse 22 is then Jesus moves from the heart. Where's your heart? Treasure the Father treasures or just treasures that moth and rust and thieves can get to? You'll notice then in verse 22, Jesus moves from the heart to the eye. Now, stay with me here. He says, you need to think about your eye. Because, see, I can tell something as I watch you, and you can tell something as you watch me. I can see as I watch your life over time what you're looking at. I can see what you focus on. And what you look at and what you focus on in the day-to-day of your life, that tells me and it tells Jesus where your treasure is. Because you're, you're always looking and focusing on what you actually value, what you actually treasure. And once we know where your treasure is, now we know where your heart is. Now we know what you love. Now we know what you hope from. Now we know what you're devoted to. Show me your eye, I'll see your treasure as I watch where your focus is. And once I know where your treasure is, I will know where your love and devotion lie and what you're really hoping from, it's it's your treasure. And once I know where your treasure is and where your heart is, then we know what rules you. Because Jesus speaks of it here as a master. What has your heart, what has your focus, masters you. It rules you. As the eye of a servant looks to the hand of the master, the psalmist says, so our eye 
waits for you, Lord God. And what you are looking at when you look at your treasure and you give away where your heart is as you look at your treasure, this is what you're actually looking to, however religious you might be, what you, where your treasure is, that is what you are looking to for provision. That's what you're looking to for protection and for direction. It's what sets your priorities. It's what really gives you hope. You know how you know when when it gets messed with, you suddenly don't have hope. It's what you expect your reward from. You really stay after that. I really feel if I stay after that and seek that and, and pursue that and, 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 and secure that, then, then I, can have, I can have the good life. Well, that's, that's your master. That's your master. And then Jesus goes in for the kill a little bit. He says, and when it comes to your treasure and your heart, which is always where your treasure is, and your eye, which follows your heart toward the treasure. When it comes to these things, verse 24, notice what he says. It is absolutely either or. It's absolutely either or. You guys still with me? You cannot serve God and mammon, God and money. You are either looking to God or you're looking to mammon. What is mammon? It's just a, a Semitic word that just, it's, it's money, but it's kind of more than money. It's just perishable treasures. It's all the treasures that moth and rust and thieves can get to and can touch. It's touchable, perishable treasure. You are, you are either looking, your eye and your heart are either looking to God or they're looking to mammon, one or the other. It's absolutely either or. You are either seeking and serving and trusting in and devoted to and consumed by and passionate about God and the values of his kingdom or the system of perishable treasures. It's one or the other, he says. Because there, there are exactly two kinds of treasure in this world. There's treasure you will lose and there's treasure you can't lose. Let me say it again. There is exactly and only two kinds of treasure in this world. The treasure you will lose and the treasure you can't lose. And one or the other has your eye, one or the other has your heart. One or the other drives your passions, fuels you day by day. One or the other dictates your priorities, dictates your focus. Now, to be very clear, because I don't want to leave any confusion here, because I don't want to make, make it seem as if Jesus is saying something he's not saying. It's not that you cannot have both. In fact, all of you, God willing, will have both. You will both have God and you will have mammon. I pray you do, actually. You can have both. It's perfectly biblical to work for a profit, to seek to have perishable treasures. You know, you, you, need, you need many of these things. Many of them are perfectly desirable. There's nothing wrong with storing up resources throughout your life and deploying those resources for good in this world. You can have both. You cannot love both. You cannot serve both. They cannot both drive your priorities. They cannot both have your heart. Maybe the way to think about it is this. What would you sacrifice for one of these, God or mammon? How much of the mammon stuff would you be willing to surrender without a second thought if you were absolutely convinced this is, this is what God my Father in heaven wants from me? And let's turn it around. How much of the stuff that God values are you willing to lay aside because career, pastor? Because money, pastor? Because status, pastor? I watch 
stunning compromises. I see it in my own heart among evangelical Christians in so many subtle ways, really, really selling out what God values because mammon. Jesus says you cannot have it both ways. It's one or the other. And then he utters this word, always stop when you see it in the Bible, therefore, verse 25. Now, I've talked to you about the compass and the map. Tried to lay out some of the territory Jesus lays out. I want to turn to the, the back half of the message now in verse 25, and I want to talk to you for just a minute about the psychology of sovereignty. The psychology of sovereignty. So we've looked at the compass and the map, treasures in heaven, valuing what God values. Now I want to talk about the psychology of these two masters, the psychology of sovereignty, because Jesus says it's because you cannot serve two masters that I don't want you to be anxious. Do you see the connection? Verse 24, you cannot serve God and mammon, therefore don't be anxious. Now, I don't don't know about you, but that doesn't immediately follow for me. You cannot serve God and mammon, so don't be anxious. There's a psychology of sovereignty. This is what Jesus is saying. If your eye, your focus, your heart, your affections, your passions are fixed on God and His kingdom, what He's doing in the world, what He cares about on earth, that's your North Star, and your needle is fixed on that, Jesus says you can then be instantly and, oh, thank God, permanently relieved of what may be the number one burden in human existence, and that, as you all know too well, is anxiety. I told Sarah this morning, I said, Sarah, it's weird. I'm about to preach on anxiety, and I'm anxious. (laughs) Jesus says, if that's your North Star, your compass can be steady. It's not doing this all the time. You you can never be anxious. Anxiety is, I think, probably the number one malaise of our age. It is epidemic among younger people. So what does Jesus mean? How does this work psychologically? Because you cannot serve God or, and mammon at the same time, you can be relieved of anxiety. How does that actually work psychologically? Now, I want, to, I want you to notice with me what Jesus does not point to here. He does not say you cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. Therefore, don't be anxious because when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. That's how a lot of preachers preach. I've realized a lot of preachers, that is the only, that's the only sermon actually in their sermon box. They just find different texts to preach that sermon. Someday you're going to go to heaven and it'll all be well. So you can have a hell of a life now. It doesn't really matter because heaven, because the afterlife, that's actually not what Jesus says. I mean, that may be, there may be a lot of truth in that. That is not what Jesus says. That's not the psychological move he makes. Well, you know, you can't serve God and you can't serve mammon, so the good news is you can lose all the mammon, but you still have God and you still have the afterlife. That's not what he actually says. He doesn't say forget about everything here and now because there and then, although that's very popular in a lot of Christian preaching, and there's actually some truth to it. That's not what Jesus says here. He doesn't say the afterlife makes it all better. What he says is you cannot serve God and mammon So I'd like you guys to look around. I'd like you, my disciples, to look around at what your Father is already doing on earth. I'd like you to look around for a minute at what your heavenly Father, what heaven is, how heaven is already moving on earth. That's what I'd like you to look at to relieve you from anxiety. And he begins by asking a very interesting question. Do you have a life? Are you alive 
Some of you look a little doubtful actually right now, but do you have a body? Well, how did you get your life? How did you get your body? Did you sit there thinking in some foggy great before? I should exist. I really should exist. It's probably even important that I exist. In fact, I'm having some anxiety about not existing, so I'm going to go exist. Is that how you got your life? Is that how you got the body you're sitting there in the pew in? How did you get your life and your body? With anxiety? Great planning? Toil? Or was it just a gift? Did God just decide to give you existence? and give you a body, and give you an embodied life in this world? Is that just a flat-out gift, and you had nothing whatsoever to do with it? And then Jesus goes on to say, tell me this, what's more, what's more, life or food? What's more valuable, the body or clothing? And here's the question he's driving at. If heaven, if your father from heaven was generous enough to give you the greater gift, he actually gave you a life and gave you a body, do you really doubt he's going to care for you in lesser ways? If he gave you the life and the body, that's the big thing. The food and clothing is fairly straightforward. You think he's not going to be able to manage the lesser things? And then he says, now let's talk about birds. Boy, there's a theological move if there ever was one. Let's talk about little birds. Because some of you all are anxious. You know why you're anxious? Because Jesus says, because you want security. You want security. You're anxious because you want security. That's why you seek mammon. He says, think about the birds for a minute. Now, birds, you know, birds are not lazy. Birds are actually very busy little creatures. They're very industrious little creatures. They're out there doing their thing. But I can tell you this, brothers and sisters, the pigeons up on the rooftops, they have never had one single moment of stress about 2021. Not a moment. Those birds up there on the wire, they never have any conversations like, man, you know, the crumb market's not looking good the political situation. They never have a conversation like this, the birds on the wire. You know why they never have that conversation? Because those little pigeons with their fairly, I'm told, bright little minds, they never have for one moment any illusion of being in control. Not one moment of illusion about that. They take what comes, and they have literally zero worries beyond that. You say, Pastor, that is some far-out stuff you're doing right now. What is that... This is Jesus. He says, I want you to have a look at the birds. They are not stressing it. Now, here's the thing. What's the consequence for these stupid birds? What's the consequence for their naivete? To sit up there on your wire, to sit up there on your rooftop, you stupid creatures, and have contentment and peace. What's the consequence for that kind of short-sightedness and inability to like, figure out what needs to happen in the world? Stress-free existence. What's their consequence? Jesus says, I'll tell you what the consequence is, and don't miss what he says. Your Father feeds them. He's not their Father. He's your Father. You know what these birds get for their naive trust, contentment, peace? Your Father feeds them. And if your Father cares enough to fill an entire world to feed billions of birds. Do you th- these birds who are nameless, 
non-eternal little things that are not made in his image, if God cares to fill a world with stuff to take care of their bodily needs, will he not figure out how to take care of you, his children? You think he won't watch over you if he's taking care of the sparrows and the pigeons? You think your future would be better if you manage the portfolio? Listen to Peter Lightheart, and he just skewers this. He says, for Jesus, anxiety is not just a feeling or emotion that we privately experience. It is that, but it's also the organizing principle of a world, a structure, and a regime, a master and a power. Anxiety is the ether of the world outside the kingdom of God. Anxiety keeps the stores open 24-7. Anxiety keeps the highways busy until the wee hours of the morning. Anxiety keeps people working late at the office. Anxiety is what builds the skyscrapers. Anxiety is what drives consumer spending. Anxiety, he says, is driven by a very simple insight. The insight that we are limited creatures and the particular fact that the future sets the boundary of our limitations. We can't see past the next moment, much less the next day or next month. Yet we want to be able to manage things. You guys still with me? We want to be able to manage things. We want to secure our future. We want to be able to know something about what we're going to eat, drink, wear, do next year, five years, ten years. We want to know that our portfolio will be expanding. Our children will still be living nearby. We'll still have a spouse, and we can't. And then this sentence, if you know you, can't man- you, ca- if you, know you cannot manage the future, and yet you try to manage the future, There can be only one result, anxiety. If you know you cannot manage the future, and yet you try to manage the future, there can be only one result, anxiety. This is the way of the world, and it's what drives the Gentiles to eagerly seek food, clothing, drink, success, and all the rest, unquote. Jesus isn't done. Thus endeth the lesson of the birds. Now let me talk for a second about flowers, he says. Oh, my word, Jesus. Thanks so much, man. This is not connecting at all. Oh, see, some of you are anxious because you want security. You need to watch the birds. Some of you are anxious because you're anxious about your significance. A lot of you are anxious about the future because you wonder if you'll be loved. You wonder if your life will matter. You feel shameful. You feel ugly. You feel worthless. You feel stupid. You feel unable. You feel... You're worried about significance, and you look at the future, and, and, and you just wonder, is my life going to have any shine, any glory? Is it going to matter? Is it going to have any... Well, these lilies of the field, you know, these are not potted plants, you know. They're having to grow out in the field. They have some work to do. They have to work to grow. They do their thing, but you know, the flowers, like the birds, they never give a single thought about their appearance. They never give a single thought about their glory, their status. How, how am I looking compared to, you know, the other lily? They never give this a thought. They just do what God made them to do, and they let the glory take care of itself. And you know what Jesus says? Now, just watch what happens. They have an elegance. They have a radiance that is unrivaled by kings because your Father clothes them. And Jesus laughs at us. He says, and if your God cares about grass, if your Heavenly Father cares about grass, do you think he will not clothe you? And he uses a funny little Greek word, oh, you little faiths. 
And he just kind of laughs at his disciples. You think he's not going to take care of clothing you? And here's the upshot, and I'm almost done in verse 34. Here's the upshot of it all. Therefore, again, don't be anxious. And this is where it's all coming to a point. Jesus says, now here's the thing. Now that there's no doubt about your father's heart towards you, because if he takes care of birds and he takes care of flowers, methinks he'll do all right by you. Now that there's no question about your father's heart towards you, let me tell you the next step for your heart. The next step for your heart is you give tomorrow to your father. Do be clear, it's his anyway. And you seek his kingdom and you seek his righteousness today. And you think about today, because let me let you in on a little secret, beloved disciple. That's all you can handle. Sufficient to the days of trouble. So seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God right now. You let your father handle the future. You know, this is so freeing. Jesus just takes the shackles off here. We are, it's so freeing not to be in control. <laughs> you know, that's the reality, but we're delusional. We are delusional. We've been delusional since the garden. We actually think we're in control. We're not, but it's freeing when you finally realize, I'm not. And you can rest in it, not as a surrender to karma or a surrender to fate, but you rest in it because you have come to know your Father's heart through Jesus. And you know what it does? It frees you to enjoy everything without dependency. I enjoy mammon. I enjoy a good paycheck and what a good paycheck can buy. I sometimes enjoy, you know, a little bit extra than above and beyond the paycheck and the fun things that that can buy, but you can enjoy without any dependency because if God gives and God takes away, blessed be his name. It's the kingdom that matters. And it's freeing because you can not only enjoy without dependency, you can suffer without despondency. You can lose without despondency because what you see when God makes you suffer, when God takes away mammon from you, you see that as an unusual opportunity from your father to learn how to invest in what God cares about. Because, beloved, I will say this, and you know this from your own heart, and I see it in my life too, we never care about the unshakable things so much as when the shakable gets shaken. And when God is shaking your shakables, he is after you loving what is unshakable. And so you can suffer and lose without despondency. And what this means is if you know your Father in heaven and you're on the journey towards that North Star, there is no circumstance in your life that does not further that journey and there is no circumstance in your life in which you cannot seek God and seek his kingdom and seek his righteousness. You can be in a gulag somewhere or in the, you know, in the council chamber of kings. You can seek the Lord and the treasures of his kingdom. That's revolutionary. In every age, whether you're with Jesus or you're living in 2021. This is revolutionary stuff. By that I just mean it, gives, it, it produces a radical change in what your life revolves around. And because it radically changes what your life revolves around, it produces a radical change inwardly from all that anxiety to real peace. That's my prayer for y'all in 2021. And me too. Amen. Granted our Father in Jesus we pray. Amen.